21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskarik. What is IFTTT and how can it be used to accelerate digital transformation? Sure. So, uh, IFT, um, I think first of all, uh, it says, you know, we pronounce it IFT, uh, spelled I F T T T. Yeah. Uh, and, oh, you, and you pronounced it just fine. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it, we've got a little bit of a goofy name with the three T's in there. Um, so we, we often go get too upset when someone pronounces it a different way. Um, but IFT or I F T T T, you know, uh, it stands for if this, then that. Um, and that's really kind of the, the basic premise, you know, if something happens, if you get uh, a new, uh, you know, like follower on Twitter or a new, uh, you know, customer uh, on your customer mailing list in MailChimp, then do something else, add that to a spreadsheet, uh, trigger some type of other email. We've also uh, been known in the past for uh, lots of kind of consumer IoT uh, uh, solutions. What we call an applet is kind of an individual unit of if something happens, then do something else. You know, so something as simple as, uh, you know, if somebody rings your doorbell uh, and, you know, then blink the lights, right? Rather than play the doorbell sound if you're on a, if you're on a Zoom call. Or uh, we've had a lot of people use um, uh, a service called Otacon and they do hearing aids. Uh, so folks that are, uh, you know, kind of hearing impaired uh, are able to kind of get a doorbell ring or uh, some kind of uh, uh, motion captured on one of their uh, webcams or, or uh, kind of outdoor security cameras. Um, so really the kind of the possibilities are endless and the, the kind of foundational kind of starting you know, uh, mission, if you will, is uh, allowing regular folks, you know, non-technical uh, folks, non-engineers uh, to do what engineers can do. Uh, so it's, you know, kind of like programming without ever talking about programming, you know, so kind of if this and that is something plucked from the world of programming. Uh, and we've spent a lot of time and a lot of our kind of expertise is around making that user experience as simple as possible. Uh, so no one should actually feel like they're programming, but they end up with essentially an end result that is a new application uh, or new kind of mini app. That's where the word applet comes from uh, that's specific to their needs and solves their problem in kind of a unique and personal way. sign up on if you know just like signing up to spotify or netflix um and you can create your own from scratch so we have basically uh kind of like a wizard uh that we call the diy creator and you basically kind of click through you know if and you click a button and it shows you the list of you know almost 800 some odd services you know from twitter to irobot you pick a service you pick a trigger is what we is the kind of uh this part and then you pick an action, which is the that part. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of the, the most simple version of if this and that. We, of course, have kind of additional, you know, if this, when this happens, and then maybe you send a tweet that's delayed by two hours or something like that. So you can get uh, kind of more 
uh, powerful uh, tools to build something a little bit more custom. Um, and that's how uh, we actually uh, generate revenue. That's our business is uh, we have a pro and pro plus account. So it's a direct to consumer business. Um, you can enable two applets for free. And then after that, you have to pay. And if you want the additional kind of power user features or, or more powerful tools, um, you pay as well. Uh, and then the other way that you can enable an applet, and this is really kind of the easiest and most powerful way, uh, is you can take something that you've created in your DIY flow and then publish it for others to use. So you can kind of explore based on, you know, the services that you've already connected. Um, you know, we have like a really powerful kind of recommendation engine um, and you can kind of see, okay, here are the things I have. What are other people doing with these services? How are other people finding ways to solve problems? And that is even simpler. You basically just click the connect button and you know you might have to fill out some fields, you know, like what what Twitter username are you following? Or, you know, what's the name of the spreadsheet that you're gonna add this information to or add a, a row to? Um, so really simple and straightforward that way. Uh, they're both really easy, uh, but you know, we found that the the more that we can kind of uh, 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 piggyback off of the creative ideas of the community and then help those folks actually publish and kind of get those out there to others, um, whether people actually use those applets that are published or kind of uh, ignite uh, a new idea and, and some new thinking for one that they create their own. Um, that's been kind of something we, we figured out, you know, two years in uh, and have really never looked back. So there's, you know, almost, like I said, infinite number of ways nearly uh, to connect these various services. And uh, we're always kind of surprised by what people come up with. Uh, despite all the experience we've had and all the different use cases we've seen. We're very lucky, you know, we launched, it was like December 2010 is when we launched into private beta. Um, and really just kind of off the strength of the idea and the initial kind of design, um, you know, maybe even bucked some of the uh, traditional advice of kind of getting the roughest MVP out there and then iterating, uh, you know, it was still pretty rough, but it was really polished. Like uh, a big part of, I think, what made if work in the early days is we thought a lot about that user experience. How do we make it simple as possible for a user to do something that is often thought of as complex or you have to go to, you know, kind of get a computer engineering degree to do. And so I think that uh, uh, allowed it to kind of uh, take on this kind of, you know, semi-viral uh, uh, aspect where people were really excited about the idea just by using it for the first time. Uh, and so had uh, actually some buddies that came from the MIT Media Lab, kind of shared it in some of those, like, I guess they were email lists. And then, you know, through some of those folks that posted it to like Hacker News, kind of spread organically from there. Um, but I think what's really worked for us over the years is that, you know, if can't do anything without the individual brands themselves, right? You know, so, you know, Twitter and Facebook and iRobot and Philips Hue and so on and so forth. And so for each one of those brands that build and launch on the platform and, you know, the, the vast majority of those are now built and maintained by developers uh, at those companies, you know, so they'll build something and then launch it. And then they kind of turn around and, you know, kind of then advertise that uh, to their users as another thing that they can do uh, with their tool or with their product. Uh, and so in that way, there's kind of this flywheel that just naturally 
you know, kind of forms between the brands, which we call services and the users. So for each new service, we kind of get to tap into uh, uh, all their existing users uh, as something that they, you know, can do. So it's it's almost like people, you know, putting, you know, the, the Twitter logo or the Facebook or Instagram logo at the bottom of their website, right? They're basically advertising not only their user on that platform or their, their profile on that platform, but they're also kind of advertising uh, that social network itself, right? So that, probably not the most powerful uh, kind of network effect that Facebook and Twitter has, but it's still something that, you know, is, is very meaningful in terms of driving new users. So we see, you know, 6,000 to 7,000 new users sign up every day now. Um, and that's been kind of growing or staying steady really throughout the duration of, of the company's life. Intelligent, intelligent. <laughs> any any other specific strategy? So to ensure ongoing customer engagement. So you're in uh, for all folks that are in D2C stratosphere. <laughs> any other strategies to ensure that ongoing customer engagement? Emails, obviously. I think you know, being very considerate about you know when a user signs up, what are kind of the the kind of campaigns and journeys we kind of take them through. Um, and how do we do that in a way that isn't just like spamming their inbox? How do we kind of, you know, get rid of the things that don't work uh, and, and improve or double down on the things that do? Um, you know, <clears throat> me like anybody else is getting tons and tons of emails, tons of kind of the push notifications. Uh, we have, you know, mobile apps on iOS and Android. Uh, so push notifications are big for the folks that download those. Um, but really trying to figure out, you know, what is the right kind of, uh, kind of trigger life cycle if you will, what are the, the situations when a user comes back or when a user you know, downloads the mobile app, not only do they have a new interface, but the mobile app actually brings in and connects a lot of other very powerful services on the platform. So things like uh, photos or your location through your, your mobile app or phone. And so once someone actually you know signs into the mobile app, we then have a, a slew of additional things that we can recommend them uh, that they can easily enable uh, that they Kind of weren't able to before so kind of finding those right moments in the kind of overall customer journey from sign up to you know becoming a, an actual customer and paying for pro or pro plus uh to help them or encourage them to kind of do the next thing or or kind of learn more or take the next step For that level of scalability, what measures are taken by IFT? I think one of the things we care a lot about is not only kind of top of funnel, how many you know kind of page views and unique users are looking at our website or looking at our mobile app pages. You know, what's that conversion rate? How many people are, are actually looking at those and then signing up? What are the pages that kind of matter most? You know, is it the home page? And for us, we've had a lot of luck by actually kind of creating specific pages that uh, showcase the connections between two services. So, you know, what can you do with uh, Google Drive and Instagram? And there's kind of a whole page for that. And that's what a lot of people end up searching for is kind of searching for like, how do I connect Google Drive and Instagram? Or something very general like that, but very specific in terms of the names of the services. Um, from there, you know, signups, uh, what we look at closely is really kind of in that first week or month of the user signing up, how do we get them to go from, a sign up doing nothing but having an account 
to enabling that first applet. Um, and so we've done a lot in terms of looking at onboarding, you know, the first of uh, uh, like emails and other recommendations, you know, what's the landing page after you sign up, what's the landing page after you sign up and then come back for the first time. Um, and we really are trying to get someone to go from zero to one applet. So if we can get someone to at least turn on or create that first applet, you know, obviously there's a high degree, a, a very high likelihood that we get to do the second and the third. Um, and so for us, we, we've kind of fluctuated between 50 and 60% of those folks that sign up uh, in that first week actually enable an applet, which we think is, is excellent. So we're, you know, we'd always love to do better than that. Um, uh, but I think it's, you know, kind of the focus that we've had uh, really since day one is like, how do we help people get started? Uh, because it is both uh, kind of daunting. There's, you know, anything that has infinite possibilities or almost feels like a creative toolkit uh, you know, it's really hard to know where to start, uh, but it's also so simple. Once you do it once and you come out the other end with something that works and, you know, creates value, saves you time, saves you money, um, it's so much easier to come back and do it again. Uh, and so I think that's something we, we look really closely at. Uh, we also look at, you know, how many folks can we get to go from uh, like signing up on the website to actually downloading one of the mobile apps? You know, once somebody, even if they haven't enabled that first applet, once they download and sign into the mobile apps, they're even more likely then to both find something they, they wanna do, the first applet they turn on, but actually much more likely to come back to the app over time. Uh, one of the things that's, I, I think, very unique to our business um, uh, and maybe other tools out there now as well, but especially kind of in the consumer space is uh, our business isn't really predicated on getting people to come back and look at our interface. In fact, there's a lot of customers that are, you know, happy as can be uh, with Ift that haven't opened the app in a month or two months. You know, they enable three or four things and maybe they come back, uh, you know, every few months to see what's new, or to check on the things they already have running. But we're able to kind of create value once someone's enabled an applet in the background. Uh, so a lot of the other kind of engagements that we measure, we, of course, measure, you know, how often are people coming back? after they've signed up. Uh, but I think even more important than that is, you know, how many applets have they enabled and then how often do those applets run? Uh, and so we've had kind of various ways to measure engagement based on, you know, having at least one applet enabled, but then even further than that, you know, having that applet run within a month. So we've kind of gone down a path of kind of getting more and more specific and we've actually come full, full circle back to kind of considering an engaged user or customer as someone that has at least one applet that's turned on and working because uh, we're creating at least some value for them. Uh, so that's, I think, a more simplistic measure uh, and may not capture, you know, like the perfect group of, uh, you know, fully engaged users, but it's so much easier for the team to think about and for us to kind of, you know, kind of build towards. And we, of course, measure the other kind of, you know, when you have two or three or four applets and then how often those applets run, those are still important, but those aren't kind of the main focus areas in terms of getting someone engaged. You know, we're instead, um, you know, one of the things we learned that the value of an applet can vary widely and the number of times that applet runs isn't necessarily a great measure, right? So a good example would be, uh, say you have like a, uh, like a ring doorbell that is, has a motion sensor on it. So you could, you know, take the, the picture from the motion sensor, save that to your Google Drive every time it captures motion. And that could happen three, four, five times a day, right? You know, a, a bird or a dog runs by or someone delivers a package. 
And so that, that, that's valuable for the user. They have this archive of all these pictures over time, uh, but you know, it's maybe less valuable than say uh, having a, uh, an alarm system. Um, so say you had a, a, some kind of alarm system or, or camera in a spot that was really critical that no one ever went to. And if someone went there, that probably meant they were trying to steal something that may never run, or it may run once every two years. And you know, when that does happen, it's bad. But if it works and it sends you the notification or somehow prevents someone from stealing something from you, well, that's incredibly valuable, right? So that's an example of something that, again, may never run or may only run once, but creates a whole lot of value where something that runs four or five times a day also creates value, but I think much smaller. So we kind of learned that the hard way through experimentation and you know, really trying to think about what is the value that's being kind of perceived or, or uh, being given uh, by us to the customer and then you know what then leads to that customer doing something more adding another applet and then eventually becoming a, a an if pro customer how did you ensure the whole system to be both secure and efficient and reliable or is it uh, again too deep <laughs> too deep question oh no i mean that that's a huge question but i you know i think maybe if you take all three of those is secure, efficient, reliable, um, maybe even starting with secure. Uh, so for us, I think one of the most important things that we knew going in was that the more someone uses Ift, the more Ift becomes really kind of a, a centralized hub with access. You know, it's you know not necessarily as important as the phone. If you think about all the places you've signed in to with your phone, but it gets close, right? Like when you connect your Google Drive, you can kind of read and write to Google Drive. When you connect your Ring doorbell cam, you can kind of see the doorbell or see when someone rings the doorbell. When you connect location, we now have access to that location. And so we knew that we needed to be very, very careful uh, with how that information was accessed. So right from the get-go, we, we really kind of uh, conceived of any of those like API tokens, any of the credentials that we needed to sign into uh, uh, those other services or access those APIs on the user's behalf were stored separately, were stored encrypted, uh, were stored in a way that, you know, what would be essentially impossible for someone, even if they somehow broke into our system, uh, to actually do anything with, right? Like there's just so many kind of layers of, of kind of protection there. Um, I think the, the other thing was, you know, uh, and we kind of have been around long enough, like I said, launched in December 2010, when we launched, the idea of like multi-factor or two-factor authentication wasn't really a thing, or at least it wasn't a thing uh, that most consumers were aware of. If you worked for you know a big enterprise somewhere, uh, they might ask you to you know uh, put in some kind of authentication code or, or SMS. And so uh, the second that was kind of gaining steam, we made sure to add that, and then also made sure to add that to our onboarding process. So we haven't quite gone so far as to like uh, uh, force users to do two-factor authentication, but you know we basically make it so the user has to make a, a you know an informed decision, right? They know it's available, uh, and we've told them multiple times, and it's something that is kind of recommended uh, uh, to them in a way that I think is uh, really helpful. So we have a lot of people that use that that two-factor, and that ultimately, especially if you're doing it without SMS, SMS kind of has its own shortcomings. Uh, but if you're doing that with like an authentication app that's generating a code, it's about as secure as you can get. Um, so, you know, 
all of those are kind of some of the steps we've taken. Uh, do things like annual security audits, black and white hat uh, testing, um, you know, because all of those uh, uh, credentials and, you know, all that information we have, uh, if that were to be breached, it would really, you know, I think uh, undercut a lot of the trust that we've built. Um, the other thing, you know, to say uh, from a security perspective, uh, I can't emphasize enough how important it is to be, you know, simple. That, that word is overused uh, and can mean so many different things. But oftentimes uh, systems become less secure because they're more confusing or hard to use. You know, so even something as you know, uh, simple as trying to figure out where you set up two-factor authentication or how you can uh, get your recovery codes or what the steps are to do that. Uh, we found that by keeping uh, the design and the user interface as simple as possible, people are then more likely to either maintain that two-factor authentication or you know, kind of reset a password in a you know, very simple and secure way. Uh, so I think it's some of that uh, kind of design background and user experience background that actually I think ends up making the system more secure because it encourages more people to actually, you know, do the secure thing, you know, use two-factor authentication and so on and so forth. So that's, that's the security bucket. Um, the uh, uh, kind of uh, reliability bucket uh, is actually something that we've, uh, I think, improved at over time. When we first launched, um, I would say we weren't super reliable one of the things we did get right, though, was uh, right from day one, we had an idea of kind of like an activity log. What happened? Um, and, you know, so if we did run into some kind of error, say um, uh, you, uh, you know, deleted your Twitter account or, you know, in some services when you like change your password, uh, and I, I'm not sure if Twitter does this anymore or not, but like when you change your password, it also uh, uh, essentially deactivates all of the OAuth or API keys that you've given out to third-party services. Um, and that's kind of part of that security measure. Those services are assuming that a password change means you're concerned about someone having access to your account uh, that maybe shouldn't. And so in those situations, you know, we would return an error in that activity log. Hey, there was a problem posting a tweet to Twitter or adding a row to a spreadsheet uh, on Google Spreadsheets. Um, and so then from there, even though that information was still very general, it, you may not even say that, hey, you know, your API key is invalid. It might just say there was an error. Users can kind of self-serve and figure out that problem. That activity log has now gotten, I think, a lot more robust, but also we've gotten a lot more reliable in that we're able to, I think, uh, detect problems with APIs in general, right? So if there's a uh, uh, you know, pick another service, let's say uh, iRobot. So iRobot's API is experiencing some kind of downtime or some type of latency. In the past, you know, say if it's latency, we would just kind of blindly continue to make API calls and then all of those users' applets would fail until that was rectified. Um, and in, in some cases, even like adding to that downtime uh, by kind of an uh, uh, unintentional DDoS attack, right? Where basically putting <laughs> all these, assuming all these API requests that are failing, and that's making more API requests fail. So it just kind of uh, builds and builds and builds. And so we've built a lot of different systems that kind of detect those problems uh, within a certain range or percentage of requests. If they start failing, we basically stop making requests. Uh, and then we alert the developer. So there's a whole kind of uh, other side of the business that most end users don't see. Uh, but on the developer platform side of things, 
you basically have a whole set of alerts and dashboards and tools that allow you to understand the health of your APIs that are connected to IFT, uh, you know, recent problems. So, you know, even just having some of those alerts allows developers like iRobot to come back to the platform and fix something. Um, and so that's one of the ways that I think we've gotten a lot more reliable is just kind of learning the hard way that, you know, the more APIs you have and the more diverse those APIs are, the more likely at any given moment, you know, like right now we probably have six or seven APIs of the 800 on the platform that are almost completely down or having some type of problem. Uh, so it's, you know, nothing, nothing's ever a hundred percent, but we're able to kind of gracefully recover and not add to the problems that those APIs are already experiencing. Efficiency is another one. You know, I think there's both efficiency in terms of like our costs, you know, what does it cost us to run an applet? Uh, but then also efficiency in terms of the developer uh, and then efficiency in terms of the end user experience. Uh, so if you think about uh, the end user is probably the simplest to talk about first is uh, a lot of situations, uh, it's more valuable to get something in real time right, or get something near real time. So if, if you've got a hearing aid uh, and motion is detected in your backyard, you probably don't necessarily need to know about that 20 minutes later. It's, you know, whatever was causing that motion is already gone. Uh, and so in those cases, you know, we've been able to kind of tighten uh, that uh, uh, period. So when we first launched, uh, I think there were actually very few APIs that had any kind of real notion of, uh, of like real time or web hooks or some type of subscribe and get a notification when something happens. So everything was based on a polling period, basically a cron job uh, for the folks that are engineers out there. This is a cron job would run like every 15 minutes or every hour, depending on the situation. Check an API, you know, 99% of the time they'd get the same data that they got back 15 minutes ago. So nothing new had changed. Uh, store some, you know, very small piece of information that says, you know, where, the, where we are in the serial chain of events. Uh, and then if there is a new event in that chain, you know, take action, save it to a spreadsheet or start your, your iRobot Roomba. Um, and over time, what we found is as we built our own platform and as APIs got more sophisticated, uh, it was in everybody's best interest, you know, the, the developer, the if platform's interest and the end user's interest to make a lot of those APIs, uh, essentially webhooks to, you know, use a very general term but essentially saying, okay, for this user with this particular ID, we're interested in updates, you know, when motion is detected or updates when they get a new email in their inbox. So rather than us asking the same question over and over again, uh, we'll, we'll basically let you tell us where the new information is. One of the things that we actually did uh, from a kind of a reliability standpoint is rather than only depend on the information coming from that, you know, webhook notification or, you know, them saying, hey, there's some new motion detected in the backyard. Uh, we often deploy what we call kind of like a, 
like a pushed in pull. So like they tell us something new has happened. They might include enough of the information in that notification for, for us to actually take action. So that's a little bit faster, but to make sure that we're, you know, not duplicating events uh, or not missing one, we basically use that notification as the, you know, kind of the trigger or the event that kicks off a poll. So everything is still ultimately poll based, but the notification allows us to poll much more efficiently. And so, you know, rather than polling every 15 minutes, in some situations, if there's a webhook notification, we poll once an hour or once a day, just to make sure we, we hadn't missed something or we hadn't dropped the notification. Um, but that, you know, back to this idea of reliability uh, was one of the things I think we got right, right? Like uh, a lot of those APIs, you know, do send enough information in that notification payload to take action or do something with it. Um, but on either side, that notification may never have been sent or, you know, if itself might've been down and we could have dropped that notification and never seen it. Uh, so if you just rely on that, you're basically relying on the uptime of, you know, multiple services at any given moment. Uh, so I think that was another thing that we kind of, I think, got right, uh, right out of the gate. Lyndon, how, how do you feed your brain? I, really, it's a, it's a combination. I think uh, exercise is so key, you know, even though it's, um, it's not necessarily learning something new while exercising, uh, you know, to me, exercise, uh, at least the right kind of exercise, you know, you know, some type of cardio running. I like to run, bike and swim. I don't consider myself a triathlete as much as I like to do the three things. Um, all three of those things are really like a forced meditation, right? Uh, and kind of a, a meditation in a very different way. I used to be a big meditator as well. Uh, it's not something I do quite as regularly, probably a couple times a week now, but I used to do twice a day, 10, 20 minutes. Um, but what I found was, is that I actually got more out of the exercise. So not only, you know, staying healthy and fit, but like getting into kind of that, that runner's high, that zone where you've kind of tuned everything out. Um, you're maybe seeing something interesting. I, I live in San Francisco. So uh, especially any runner bike, you're, you know, you're, all, you're always seeing something cool and new and, and, and beautiful. Um, but like that allows you, I think, to kind of open up to creative ideas or uh, kind of get to a, a place where you can make a decision I think would be much harder to make if you were just like thinking about that decision all day. Um, so, you know, maybe counterintuitive, but to, I think keep your brain healthy. I think it starts with keeping your body healthy and finding the type of exercise that allows you to get into the kind of that meditative, almost zoned out state. Um, from a, keeping the brain healthy, you know, one of, one of the company values, one of my own kind of personal uh, values are almost like, like I sometimes like to say kind of like the secret to life. Uh, is always learning. Um, and I think it's not only a way to help yourself get through mistakes, right? You know, if you can kind of approach every mistake as a learning opportunity and try, at least try not to do it the same way twice. Uh, I think that's really kind of a, a powerful, but also, you know, kind of a cliche thing. But it, it also has to do with, um, I think a lot of engineers or people with an engineering background somehow naturally either have an affinity for this or like through just even their professional careers learn this. Um, you've got to continue your education throughout your entire life, you know? And I think uh, especially like software engineering is, I think, very conducive to this. You know, it's 
you might have learned PHP and Perl 20 years ago, but if those are your kind of core skill sets today, you know, maybe a little bit harder to get a job. You know, there's always an exception, right? I'm sure like the best Perl developer can work on a system that was built 30 years ago and make tons of money, but you know, that you're incentivized to stay very current. Um, and maybe other professions, like I imagine maybe a medical profession might have something similar to that. Um, but if you kind of apply that, no matter what your background is, uh, and apply that not only to like your deep expertise, right? So if you went to business school, you probably have a deep expertise in finance or, you know, uh, uh, something like uh, management or, or managing other people. So obviously staying current there, but uh, really thinking of it like a, a T-shape. You have, you know, kind of a singular deep expertise where you want to be like the best in the world, but you actually can improve or strengthen that expertise the more broad uh, the things you know you maybe are interested in, you maybe don't have that same depth, uh, but the more broad you can make that interest, uh, the more kind of unique ways and unique perspectives you have. Yeah, so I think for me, uh, that interest is always changing. Um, you know, very interested in uh, geology or maps. Uh, for a long time, I collected maps and just could like look at a map almost like reading a book or, you know, just kind of looking at a, like a where's Waldo, you want to look at almost every little pixel or uh, a piece of that map. Um, right now I'm uh, huge into audiobooks. I used to read, you know, <clears throat> and all the people that brag about how many books they're reading, how fast it's such a silly thing, but it's just like the more info that you can consume that you're actually interested in, uh, you know, and so it doesn't matter the quality of that. If you're really interested in cartoons and you, are, are watching cartoons in an engaged way where you're learning something or thinking about how someone made that cartoon. It's not garbage, right? Like that's still, you're, you're kind of actively engaged. It's not just like a passive, you know, thing that's washing over you. Um, and so I've been, you know, really into reading regular books, but now uh, audio books. And I went so deep, I think even in some of the business books that I don't think I've read a business book for three or four years just because I almost like overdosed on business books, right? But I've been very interested in uh, things like uh, uh, history or, you know, I think uh, one of the books that I, I would recommend that I'm actually going back to sort of kind of a series of books by a woman named Lynn McTaggart. Uh, and she's kind of like a scientific reporter, uh, uh, you know, but also kind of on the cutting edge or fringes of things that I think a lot of scientists don't consider scientific. Uh, but she's, you know, she's not reporting on magic or something. It's, it's actual real studies for how information is, you know, transferred. So she has a book, I think the, the big, the biggest book that she's had is called The Field. Uh, and they talk a lot about how uh, essentially every living organism, and I think almost an extension, everything, you know, every collection of atoms actually transmits photons and transmits a measurable information field. And uh, like one of the ways uh, that people have measured this, and I, I think some of these studies are done by serious people at serious universities. Stanford uh, had a big program uh, in the past that kind of gets mentioned in all the conspiracy theory blogs. But like, you know, there's been studies by very legit people that are you know very statistically significant uh, where situations are like you can uh, have like a plant in one room, put a person in another room and have the person basically think either positive thoughts, like I'm going to walk in the room and like water that plant or, you know, treat that plant really well or negative thoughts. And I'm going to, I'm going to walk in that room and I'm going to rip the plant's leaves off. And you can measure 
an active, you know, like a statistically significant difference in the reaction by the plant. So the person based on how they're thinking about a plant in another room can communicate with the plant. And that's like, I mean, you know, that's crazy, right? Like uh, people would say that that's, you know, mumbo jumbo, but, you know, I think read the book and kind of come away and uh, see, see what you think. It's, there's something actually there. Uh, so it's like stuff like that, that almost feels, you know, kind of magical or, or friends or interesting uh, that I, I've kind of been drawn to lately um, and trying to kind of suss out like what's, what's actually real, what, what, what is kind of scientifically proven, but just kind of shunned or ignored versus, you know, what are the stuff that, you know, people are spamming YouTube with conspiracy videos about. Uh, so I, I think, you know, that's my current interest, but that'll change probably two years from now. It'll be something very different. I think part of being an entrepreneur is almost like defaulting to you, like you have to be an optimist, right? Like uh, any any business, any venture, it, it is an adventure, right? Like uh, we've kind of uh, lost the idea of like explorers that are like mapping the globe or, you know, the Shackleton is gonna like cross the Antarctic or something, you know, like so much of that is, you know, we have astronauts, but right? Like only a handful of those. So the idea of like a dangerous adventure I think one of the only outlets for those that are kind of interested in that uh, is entrepreneurship. Right, like it's not physically dangerous necessarily, uh, depending on how crazy you are, but it, it, is, it is a risk, right? Like you're taking a risk, you're usually leaving a, a job uh, if you have a family, it's an even bigger risk. And so I think in many ways, you know, having that sense of optimism and kind of being able to take something that, you know, almost everybody else thinks is is garbage or isn't going to work or I would never, you know, in San Francisco, I would never live there, you know, because of all the homeless folks and all the things that you, you read about crime and so on and so forth. But then you can turn that around and say, well, actually, because no one else wants to live here, there's an opportunity there. Um, and I think if you're able to look at it from a slightly different perspective and see those opportunities, you know, you can basically apply that approach to anything, not just building your successful business, but you know, life in general. Whether you're an aspiring entrepreneur or a successful content creator, uh, just starting to build your own personal business, uh, IFT, which stands for if this and that, is building solutions that are gonna help save you time. Uh, sign up and find those solutions to connect all of the services that you use to run your business at ifttt.com. 21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskarik.